During my sabbatical, my wife and I went on a honeymoon to St. Lucia, a beautiful island with extraordinary people, rich culture and history, and the largest mountains in all of the Caribbean, the Grand Pitons. And we laid in a chair on the beach under a straw cabana between these two massive volcanic summits, looking out at the ocean, drinking coconut water and other things, <laughs> watching the ships sail by us, letting all of our anxiety evaporate in the heat and our stress disappear in the sun each day as it set on the water. And as we relaxed on the beach, soaking up the beauty of God's creation, I thought of that wonderful poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. For all this, though, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O oh morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. There is something incredibly hopeful about Hopkins' claim that despite all the things humanity has done to the earth, crushing, wrecking, trotting and trotting and trotting, searing with trade, blearing and smearing with toil, that somehow, some way, nature is never spent. Nature is never spent, Hopkins wrote. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. Oh, morning at the brown brink, eastward springs. Why, he writes, because the Holy Spirit over the bent world broods with warm breasts and ah, bright wings. Nature is never spent because of the Holy Spirit. There is hope in that. Today is Pentecost Sunday, a time set aside in the Christian year, as Mia mentioned, when we remember when the Holy Spirit arrived in Jerusalem with wind of power, tongues of fire, giving birth to an international, inter-ethnic, multicultural community that we now call the church, a community where Peter testified the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, sons and daughters, men and women, young and old, slave and free, inspiring them to dream new dreams, to see new visions. This extraordinary divine energy and life-giving power is what enabled those fearful and fragile and feckless disciples to come out from hiding behind locked doors in the upper room and walk out into the world as bold and courageous witnesses, 
ready to share the good news of life, love, and liberation against all odds against them and turn the world upside down, as it says in the book of Acts. This is the meaning of Pentecost Sunday and the story that we celebrate together today. In his book, Fresh Air, scholar Jack Levison claims the spirit is a force to be reckoned with, an impulse to which mere humans capitulate, a source of daily breath and an uncountable outside power. It is in every human being, Levison contends, who can cultivate the wisdom through simplicity and faithfulness. The spirit is particularly present, he mentions, not in the status quo, but in social upheaval. The Spirit inspires whole communities. The Spirit drives the faithful into arenas of hostility. The Spirit simultaneously inspires both ecstasy and restraint, study and spontaneity. The Spirit is a wild and unpredictable character. To confess God as Spirit, one writer writes, is to acknowledge that the world is not under our control, nor is that of any other creature, system, force, or thing, for everything is breathed by God. To pledge ourselves pliable by the Spirit may breed anarchy, but it undoubtedly sets our face against all forms of fatalism. One of the things that Christians forget about the Holy Spirit is that it did not arrive for the first time in Jerusalem at Pentecost. The Spirit was present from the very beginning. The author of the book of Genesis tells us that in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, all was formless, void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, that the Spirit of God swept, hovered, brooded over the face of the waters. The Spirit, we are told, played an active role in the creation of the world and remains deeply connected to creation throughout history. What arrived in wind and fire on Pentecost in Jerusalem was nothing less than the invincible power of creation itself, the power of a nature that is never spent. As we heard this morning, the psalmist understood this special relationship, an unbreakable connection between the Spirit and creation. They sing praise to the Spirit, the one who lays on the waters the beams of her upper chambers, makes the clouds her chariot, rides on the wings of the wind makes the winds her celestial messengers, fire and flame are her ministers, makes springs gush forth in the torrents and flow between the hills. She is the one who gives drink to every wild animal from whom wild donkeys slake their thirst. She is the one who waters the mountains, satisfies the earth with fruit, makes the grass grow for the cattle and vegetation for human labor, brings forth food from the earth and wine to make human beings rejoice, oil to make our faces shine, bread to sustain our hearts. And the she, which may have alarmed you, is the right translation. Based on Genesis' description and the psalmist's vision, it may be better for us to name the force in whom we live and move and have our being the spirit of creation instead of just the Holy Spirit. Of course the spirit is holy because creation is holy. It is charged, as it were, with the grandeur of God. But it is also the power of creation itself. I don't know about you, but I've been watching Obi-Wan on Disney+. Plus. And even though I'm not personally a crazy Star Wars fan, I say crazy, I am a Star Wars fan, but not a crazy one. 
I can think of no other artistic representation of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of creation, that is more accurate than what we receive from the Star Wars franchise, the Force. For those who are not Star Wars people, the Force is a binding, metaphysical, and ubiquitous power that connects all living beings in the galaxy across the universe, something that can be tapped into at any time with the right spiritual connection. George Lucas has attributed the origins of this to an abstract film by Arthur Lipset that contained a conversation between an artificial intelligence pioneer, William McCullough, and a cinematographer named Roman Kreuter. McCullough, in this conversation, was arguing that living beings are nothing more than highly complex machines. But Kreuter instead said there was something more, that many feel in the contemplation of nature itself and in their communication with other living things, this force, something else. They become aware of this life force behind the apparent mask which we all see in front of us. And many people call that God. Lucas agreed and claimed, for the last 13,000 years, similar phrases have been used by many different peoples and religious traditions to describe the life force of creation itself. The spirit of creation is the life force that animates our world and our universe, connecting us with all living things. The only difference I see between the force in Star Wars and the spirit of creation we find in the Bible is that the life force, the force in Star Wars, requires the use of a lightsaber and other forms of violence. And the spirit of creation does not. This does not mean, however, that things are much worse in the Star Wars universe than they are in our own. As we heard in our text from Romans today, there is much suffering in our world today. And Paul contends that creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation, he says, was subjected to futility, meaninglessness, pointlessness, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who subjected it. The hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul continues, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, he says. There is no doubt we live at a time when creation is groaning. And we too, as human beings, are groaning with it if we are willing to admit it. This groaning is not simply the result of the catastrophic effects of climate change, those though do create groaning, but also the groaning of a creation over a world that is at war, not just in Ukraine, but Myanmar, Afghanistan, Yemen, and Ethiopia as well. This groaning is also the groaning of creation over the suffering and death of so many people from a global health pandemic as well as many other pandemics, like the gun violence that kills so many, poverty, homelessness, hunger. 
Many ethnic and minority groups, racialized groups in our country, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, are groaning as well, suffering. LGBTQ people, as we begin Pride Month, we must remember, are groaning as a result of the violence and injustice and oppression they experience. Many of these groanings are simply exacerbated and intensified by a campaign of misinformation and hatred spread out in the internet and through certain media and news outlets, creating a fantasy land of radical political division and social alienation. The whole of creation is most definitely groaning. And as Paul said, we are trapped in bondage to decay. Which may be why it feels like so many things in our world are decaying. Truth itself is decaying. Social trust is decaying. The earth, it feels, is decaying. Democracy is decaying. The church, we hear all the time, is declining, decaying. We ourselves are groaning too, trapped like creation in a bondage to decay, awaiting revelation, awaiting some kind of freedom and adoption, awaiting the redemption of our bodies. But I wonder, have we taken the time to reflect on this? What are we groaning for as individuals today? What are you groaning for? What is our collective groaning? It may not seem like it on the surface, but there is hope in this story. Hope in our groaning. Paul compares the groaning we experience to labor pains or birth pains of a woman preparing to bring a child into the world through her body. We can hear the sounds of a child. <laughs> These are not the groans of death, are they? But life, the groans of life coming, our pain, while extraordinary, is literally pregnant with the hope of a new creation and a new life that is coming to be. The groaning and suffering is the physical and audible indication that God is bringing something new into the world. And that is always a hopeful thing. Our hope, the hope of a new creation, has the power to save us and liberate us from all the futility, from the bondage of decay in our world, turning our groaning into rejoicing, turning our mourning into dancing. This hope does not deny the reality of our groaning, the pain, the suffering, the grief of the present moment. No, it holds space for reality and accepts it. But it also refuses to be overcome by despair by concentrating its attention on the hope provided by the power of the Spirit and the new creation that God is bringing into the world. Paul and the psalmist contend that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of creation and new creation who is always working to fill people with the power and inspiration to participate in the renewing of the face of the earth. This means that to live by the Spirit, to participate in the spirit, or in our modern terms, what we use to practice spirituality, is to work to liberate ourselves from the bondage of decay and to seek to align ourselves with the work of the spirit of creation that is always renewing the face of the earth, giving birth always to a new creation. And so spirituality, often discussed, is not just the inner work of prayer and soul-searching, formation or education. It is the inner work, the outer work, and the work we do in community together to free ourselves and all people from futility to despair, the bondage of decay, from meaninglessness, 
from nihilism, from violence, from oppression. Spirituality is literally connecting with the life force of creation itself in order to liberate people for a life of love and justice and peace. This power, this energy, this force is always with us. And if we're willing, we can tap into its creative energy to help us find relief and a way forward through all of our groaning. Reflecting on the Spirit on Pentecost Sunday is critical work for us to do in this season we are in of rebuilding community because the Spirit is the life force that animates community, the force that gives birth and rebirth to the church, that crosses boundaries of ethnicity, religion, culture, race, gender, age, affiliation to bring people together for the common mission of renewal, particularly the renewal of the earth. This is the spirituality that not only saves us and liberates us, but as Paul claimed, has the power to liberate all of creation as well. As you know, spirituality is a key part of our mission as a church. But we must be careful how we talk about spirituality. We love to throw around the word spirituality as if we all know what it means and have some common understanding of the term. But spirituality is a very nebulous idea, a notoriously difficult thing to define. As the poet and spiritual teacher Amoda Ma writes, this spiritual thing needs to be unpacked. It's not about transcending the world, being immune to the world's suffering, turning away from the world to go inside and contemplate your navel, she says, achieving a higher state of consciousness in which nothing touches you. For start, she says, you can't transcend the world. That's nonsense. The raw reality is that you are here. You simply cannot be anywhere but here. You cannot escape being here in this experience. Becoming spiritual is not a viable escape route from reality. We only falsely imagine that we can do spiritual things, become more spiritual, make progress on the spiritual path while being cocooned against the pain and the groaning and the horror of the world. She writes, my friend, that spirituality won't save you. It will just imprison you. You will become imprisoned by your expectations, your striving, and your hope for otherworldly salvation. She goes on to say, there is only one answer to your pain and your groaning and your problems, and that is to be absolutely present, open in the midst of the full human condition, not just sometimes when you're on a cushion meditating or when you're sitting at the feet of a spiritual teacher, when you feel happy or feel like being present or open, but always, always, always. The more you accept of reality, she says, the more you bow down to life as it truly is, the more you will fall into a state of such contentment such tenderness, such beauty, such richness and depth, that all attempts to escape reality will be seen as childish and futile. And all attempts to be more spiritual will seem to be useless because the only salvation is here and now. There is no escape. Just this. Just this life. Just this unadulterated presence and unwavering openness to life and reality here. We live in a world of binaries and dualities born from a toxic philosophy of compartmentalization. This inhuman idea 
has divided our lives and our reality into self-contained silos for the purpose of some kind of deeper examination like disciplines in a university. We separated body from soul, head from heart, material from spiritual, physical from metaphysical, political from theological, land from people, creation from humanity. And now we say, this thing over here, this is spiritual. But this thing over here, this is something else. And that is a lie. It's simply not true. Our understanding of the human person and reality has been segmented like the diagram of a pig used to determine the most prime cuts for bacon or barbecue. Humans were not intended to be divided into parts. Binary and dualistic philosophies stand in opposition to the wholeness and oneness of our embodiment. We cannot understand ourselves by separating different aspects of our minds and personalities and studying their parts. We need a holistic spirituality, not a dualistic or binary spirituality. And to that end, we must work to integrate the parts of the human person, the full reality of our experience that has been compartmentalized over the years into a new and holistic anthropology and integral spirituality. I had a spiritual teacher who liked to say to me, if it's human, it belongs in our spirituality. If it is human, it belongs, which means that spirituality is not some otherworldly things, but all the quotidian mysteries of reality as we know it now. There is spirituality in doing the dishes, in walking the dog, in raising children, in grandparenting grandchildren, in cleaning the house, in laundering our clothes, in eating, in being in a relationship, in marriage, in going to work, in reading, in sports, in working out, in watching television, in hiking and swimming and shopping and giving, fundraising and seeking justice, politics and voting are all spiritual activities. We are spiritual beings. Therefore, anything we bring our intention and attention to is spirituality. If it's human, then it belongs. But we might go further, as Paul and the psalmist did, and say, if it's created, if it's in creation, it belongs. Plants and animals, vegetables and minerals, even viruses are part of our spirituality. The spirit of creation is groaning, and we are just part of a creation that groans, living in codependent solidarity with all living things that are also groaning all around us all the time. What is the new thing that is being born of the groaning and the suffering and the labor pains and the birth pangs of creation and humanity? What is the hope that we're longing for and pining for and eagerly awaiting. What is coming into the world that has the power to reveal our glory and give us freedom and liberate us from futility and the bondage of decay and offer us adoption and the redemption of our bodies? It wasn't just the spirit of creation, the Holy Spirit, the life force of power and energy for each and every one of us. It was also a community. That's Pentecost. That's hope. A new community where divisions were transcended and people were united, not by the empire or ethnicity or doctrine, but by a common purpose to join with the spirit and work together for the renewal of the earth. A community that we call the church, and yet we know that most churches throughout history, even ours, have only borne a faint resemblance to that original vision. Yet the possibility for this community to be embodied in the present is always on the horizon, just within our reach if we are willing to make personal sacrifices 
and do what is necessary to achieve it. Yes, we are living in an age of groaning. Creation is groaning. Humanity is groaning. Democracy is groaning. America is groaning. The church is groaning. Our church is groaning. Many members of our church are groaning. And sometimes all that groaning sounds like we're dying. Sounds like we are gasping for that last breath of air before we die. But that is not true. That is a lie. We are groaning, but we're not dying. We're being reborn. We're not dying, we're laboring. We're not dying, we're pushing. We're not dying, we're striving. We're not dying, we're renewing the face of the earth. We're not dying, we're transforming. We're not dying, we're bringing hope into the world. We're not dying, we're making a way where there is no way. We're not dying, we're building a new community. We're not dying, we're opening a path for God's great future. We're not dying, we're being resurrected. We're not dying, we're coming back to life. We're not dying, we're becoming free. Do you believe it? Do you feel it in your spirit? I hope so. Amen.